In the hot seat today, we have Muslim activist Dr. Salman Butt. He is a PhD in biochemistry, and whilst at university, he was the president of his Islamic society. Presently, he is the chief editor at Islam 21C, a large online Muslim publication. He is launching a legal challenge against the government for deeming him as an extremist speaker. Our interview today is going to be around his legal challenge, but then also we will talk about the notion of extremism, radicalization, and the prevent strategy, particularly with a focus around the university scene here in the UK. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Salman But Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? What was your journey up to being editor at Islam 21C? Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. During my time at university, I became increasingly involved in Islamic society, um, Islamic da'wah and activism. And um, I was a part of uh, the Islamic society. I was a chair there for a while and I joined the Federation of Islamic Societies uh, forces. And this made me increasingly more aware of uh, important issues surrounding Muslim community and Muslim experience in Britain. And um, after I graduated, I wanted to put the skills that I learned into such areas. So I jumped at the opportunity to join Islam 21C. You were mentioned specifically by name on a press release by the Home Office as being um, on a list of speakers that were deemed to be, I quote, on record, expressing views contrary to British values. And the government um, was insinuating that you shouldn't be speaking at university campuses because of that. Is this a correct label for you? Well, the problem with uh, labels such as uh, extremist and, and uh, the government's definition as you know, um, speaking against British values, so-called British values, uh, is that it is broad enough to um, apply to almost anyone um, and it's presented in the iconography, the, um, the kind of rhetoric of ISIS and terrorism and uh, uh, political violence. So. Um, it's a very lazy definition, it's a very problematic definition as many um, many people have and are continuing to uh, bring up and uh, my name being uh, smeared with this accusation is actually subject to litigation at the moment so we're pursuing a, a legal case against uh, against the government for this. So what is actually the definition that the government uses for extremism? The definition uh, in the Prevent uh, Duty Guidance uh, that the government has published is something on the line, along the lines of vocal or active opposition to so-called British values, which they give a few examples of, such as democracy, the rule of law, um, and tolerance of other faiths and religions. So the problem with this is um, it's arbitrarily uh, applied uh, on people, and we argue on Muslims um, disproportionately and, and unfairly. These values, uh, they're not specifically British, uh, these are values which many nations, many human beings across the globe uh, regard as values, but the problem with using uh, so-called opposition to certain values as some kind of criterion is these values um, are almost like slogans sometimes. Uh, the, the actual um, concretization of these values, uh, implementing them in real life and you know, um, putting different values together and juggling different values, that is uh, a very subjective process. You know, and uh, so nobody is going to openly say I'm against justice, or I'm against you know, tolerance. 
So is the government making the accusation against you that you are, uh, well, opposed, for example, uh, mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths, individual liberty, the rule of law, democracy? Is that what they mean when they say that you're someone who expresses views contrary to British values? I'd like to know myself. I mean, this was part of the reason why we've launched a, uh, a legal case for okay. them, for us to actually see why the government has uh, made me and, so and other people with this. Can I ask you specifically, what was it that the government particularly took offence to um, and what led to this label uh, being addressed to you? Well, I, I asked my member of parliament, Fiona McTaggart, um, to ask the Home Office this question and she, she actually, um, beyond her expectations, she actually did... Uh, receive a reply and uh, there were a few things which were smears against me which were untrue but the only true thing that, that they actually highlighted as an excuse for naming me as an extremist was that I shared a platform with CAGE a few years ago, an advocacy group which I would happily um, you know, do any, any day of the week. There were some specific articles and specific social media posts weren't they? Yes, I mean, they, they mentioned in their correspondence that there were some specific articles and social media posts and so forth, but uh, we're still waiting to um, find out what that actual evidence uh, for the accusation is. from. Okay, and well, do you accept their allegation that Islam 21C as a, um, a host actually contains material that is contrary to British values? Not according to my own interpretation of British values, but um, we want to be in a position where even if it did, uh, we should nurture and inculcate this uh, an atmosphere where people can challenge ideas in a respectable manner in a uh, without descending into insults or silencing people um, that's how you learn as a society i can understand your apprehension regarding this especially with you know the use of the definition broadly but surely we can trust the government to apply it in a fair and balanced way with the required due diligence um, I mean, I'd like to in, in, in an ideal world, but um, in the system we have today, it's important to have a strong civil society holding the government to account and, you know, um, uh, monitoring uh, the way the government is is um, using these terms. And unfortunately, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a great um, uh, contradiction in the way uh, these labels are applied to non-Muslims uh, compared to Muslims. Uh, for doing pretty much the same thing. So, uh, and do you have any examples of that? I mean, whenever a uh, non-Muslim uh, commits a crime, for example, or an act of um, anti-social act, uh, it's seen as it should be as an isolated incident. Uh, unfortunately, when a Muslim appears to do something uh, very similar, uh, it's it's unfortunately often spun within a, a national security uh, context. as It's usually pieced together some kind of grand you know, um, uh, Islamist uh, ideological kind of connection to events happening uh, thousands of miles away. And unfortunately, this type of uh, apparent double standard has permeated all levels of society. So we see, for example, in the way uh, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, uh, treated the cases of uh, Gary McKinnon and uh, Talha Ahsan. Uh, they both committed or alleged, are alleged to have committed uh, similar crimes. They both suffer from Asperger's syndrome, and they were both asked to be uh, extradited to the United States. Now, in the former, the Gary McKinnon case, the Home Office Home Secretary rightly stepped in and said that would be a violation of his rights. But unfortunately for Talha Ahsan, not only did she fail to protect him from being extradited, 
but it was used as some kind of victory to uh, some kind of evidence to show how tough you know uh, the home office is on so-called Islamic extremism. But surely the government needs to do something about extremism, radicalization, uh, and the threat of terror in this country. What should they be doing if not enacting policies like this? Well, I think the main thing to bear in mind is um, the lumping together of these words, extremism, radicalization, and terrorism. When it comes to actual terrorism, this is a crime. Okay, We have more than enough um, legislation to and, and powers for the state to intervene and to actually uh, prevent and prosecute actual acts of terrorism because these are crimes and the criminal justice system is more than capable of dealing with these cases. The problem is bringing in these woolly words like radicalization and uh, extremism because I believe the government should not uh, be in the place of silencing ideas especially if they're not going to uh, they're not credibly going to harm anyone or lead to an actual crime. But what the government says is, it's these ideas, these ideas that, you know, cause extremism in, in their viewpoint, that then go ahead to f fuel radicalization and terrorism. You have to understand that point of view. Absolutely. And this is where the government fails uh, miserably when trying to actually put a case forward, uh, showing the science behind this claimed causal link between um, radical, so-called radical ideas and l harmless ideas and actual acts of, of violence and, and political, uh, political violence and terrorism. So are you saying that the government's wrong when they say that ideas that are contrary to British values as they define it lead to terror and extremism? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, the, the, the overwhelming majority of the academic literature, the peer-reviewed academic literature, which is based on empirical studies of cases of terrorism, of cases of political violence for the last few decades, um, conclude with, with reasonable accuracy, with reasonable uh, strength and cogent arguments, that uh, a person's ideology, a person's political uh, views are, in, uh, are um, incidental rather than causative when it comes to uh, political violence. Okay, so uh, what's un unfortunately happened is the last 10 to 15 years of um, popular uh, counterterrorism uh, rhetoric and, and, and uh, media um, reports and, and, and even policy uh, surrounding this, most of it has been based on this uh, discredited uh, theory called the conveyor belt theory, which is basically it says a person starts off as a normal person and then somehow gets radicalized into an ideology which then goes on to cause that person to commit acts of violence. So you're saying that these aren't causative, then what causes someone to go ahead and commit an act of terror if, it not, if it's not the extremist kind of uh, radicalization? That's, a, that's an excellent that. question and this is, this is a question which unfortunately is, is, is happening in social studies departments, in uh, criminology departments, in anthropology departments all over the world. But the, the research, uh, the results of this uh, research are largely being ignored by certain sectors of uh, the government and uh, the media establishment. And naturally, there's going to be a lag. There's always a lag between what happens in the academy or what happens in laboratories uh, and you know, public policy. And, and we hope that uh, the government... Uh, and, and society at large understands that this is a highly flawed 
uh, theory to presume that somebody's ideology, somebody's beliefs, uh, mechanically somehow cause them to to uh, pick up a gun and murder someone. Uh, when in doing so, not only are we uh, looking at the wrong place to prevent actual acts of violence, we're in fact um, ignoring the actual causes, the actual empirically determined causes of political violence, despair, um, anger, a sense of alienation, a sense of not belonging, uh, socialization into uh, an in-group, you know, a people, uh, a group with a uh, shared kind of uh, anger and resentment towards wider society. Uh, there, there is a lot of uh, academic research done on this, uh, and it's 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 my hope that this legal case that we're fighting will uh, actually force the government, force policymakers to shun uh, ideologically charged um, think tanks and so forth, who are uh, advising government policy on this, and instead of that, turn towards the the, the vast body of peer-reviewed academic literature on this. Sorry, just to be clear, then what you're saying is that. It's not ideology that drives radicalization, extremism, terrorism, whatever it is you, you want to call it, but rather you're saying it's other factors separate from ideology. As main drivers, we're not saying ideology is non-existent. Ideology is important for a group identity, is important as a post facto justification for a person. Uh, you know, everyone has uh, some kind of language through which they express uh, themselves, through which they try and justify uh, to themselves and to wider society, um, actions, courses of actions that they're, 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 they're taking. If a Muslim happens to do it, then he will or she will use Islamic terminology, metaphors, iconography, Islamic ethics, because that's what they know. If it's a Christian, such as in the Lord's Resistance Army or uh, the FARC, um, or even the KKK, for example, then they will use that terminology and that um, you know imagery and that ethic to justify their... Uh, their their violence and their actions. What we need to do is not look at this justification and try and um, divert all our resources on that, but look at the actual root causes that are pushing the people into the state of despair, the state of anger, the state of um, uh, pushing themselves towards uh, political violence. Because the if uh, if a person doesn't find a justification. Um, from one Islamic cleric or whatever, uh, he or she will just keep going, and uh, unfortunately, t until they find some way to 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 justify what they already feel like doing. We shouldn't be focusing so many resources on the justification, but rather the actual stopping people wanting, uh, you know, to 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 cause harm to people and so forth. The government's very specific now. What they say is it's not about reducing the freedom of speech. In fact, they say that this will be protected. But they say it is about taking away the oxygen that radical ideas may need to flourish and to protect young minds. If there's anything history has shown us, it's that so-called radical ideas need to be heard in society. That the cure to speech you don't like is not to silence it, but to try and challenge it. Sometimes if you don't like somebody's speech, um, it might feel, you might want to you know, silence them so, because you, know, you want to win the argument that way. But if you really believe in your own values, if you really believe in your own position, why not um, refute those uh, ideas that you don't like on an equal footing, on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a fair platform? When it comes to um, radical 
uh, political radical views, okay, from anything from you know, left-wing radical radicals and um, nationalist radicals or whatever. If history has shown us anything, it's that um, when they experience state suppression, that's when they a small minority of them actually turn towards violence. We've seen this with the provisional IRA. We've seen this with uh, the anarchist bombings in in uh, in Paris of the last, uh, a century ago. And we've seen this even in uh, the uh, uh, anti-war student movements in the USA against the Vietnam War. When they felt that the government or the state was suppressing their right to freely challenge something that they felt um, passionately about, that's when a very small minority of them turned towards violence. So even if the government wants to argue that certain preachers are preaching radical views, the evidence shows us that in order to keep everyone safe, we have to provide a, a space for these uh, so-called radical views to be expressed, for people to feel that their voices are heard, and if necessary, challenged publicly and challenged openly. The worst thing uh, for this is to suppress it and to drive it underground and to, to make, uh, in this case, Muslims feel that they are unable to express themselves in the society they call home. Before the government came up with the prevent strategy, surely Muslims had the opportunity to air their thoughts and ideas openly. Why did political violence still happen at that time? Well, let's look at any examples of when Muslims did engage in political violence, or some Muslims did engage in political violence. The only example I can think of is 7-7, which had very little to do with university campuses, very little to do with some kind of religious indoctrination. It was to do with anger, uh, young uh, foolish people being angry, in this case at the Iraq war, you know, um, many people felt angry that uh, millions of people marched in the streets of London. And again, if uh, 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 many people feel that they're not being listened to, a very small minority of them may turn towards violence if they're foolish enough to do that. But that doesn't uh, negate the or, or invalidate the concerns of the majority of people with regard to that, uh, these tragic events. A lot of terrorist-related offences um, nowadays, you know, in recent history, have involved students or people who've just come out of university. I mean, we've got Errol Insadol, who's a law student at London South Bank University. You've got um, Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib, who, you know, tried to bomb a passenger flight to Detroit in 2009 after his time at UCL. Aksa Mamou, the radiography student. You've got. Um... Let me let me stop you there. The, 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 it's well known that there are these four uh, a handful of uh, examples of Muslim people who happened to have been at university, then went on to commit some kind of crime later on in life. We have to look, there, there, there are many issues with, um, with, with what you just said. Firstly, we have to look at statistics, okay? Um, there are estimated uh, upwards of 130,000 Muslim students in the United Kingdom. Uh, just because four of them or five of them commit some kind of crime after they left university, that in, uh, in no uh, shape or form uh, represents some kind of causal link. Secondly, um, to say that uh, there are a significant number of terrorism cases involving Muslims who went to university, it says more actually about uh, the way this uh, definition of terrorist incident is uh, designated to different people. Unfortunately, you'll see it's, it's uh, applied disproportionately to Muslims uh, despite doing similar crimes, uh, if not crimes of a lesser uh, degree, 
uh, to their non-Muslim counterparts. If we look at, for example, the cases of um, Michael Adebolaja and Michael Adebowali, uh, the killers of Lee Rigby, uh, that was uh, seen explicitly as a terrorist incident. Whereas uh, the case of Thomas Mayer, it was uh, who, who, for political, explicitly stated political reasons, uh, brutally murdered uh, MP Joe Cox. Uh, he was not uh, regarded as a terrorist, nor was his case um, uh, dealt with under anti-terror legislation, but rather in, under the criminal justice system. So there is this also this uh, this problem of um, designation of the word terrorist and terrorism. Uh, disproportionately to Muslims that actually skews the way we look at these things. The government also takes issues with gender segregation at universities. I know this is something that's practiced by a lot of Islamic societies. What the government is insinuating is that gender segregation leads to a mindset which is extremist in nature. Do you agree with that? Absolutely not. And the reason is this is uh, an error carried forward, uh, a result of building uh, policy surrounding uh, so-called radicalization and terrorism on such fictitious grounds and that is that ideology causes terrorism. If somebody has taken this as a premise then in order to prevent terrorism they're going to create policies and create um, police procedures to actually identify expressions of ideology to somehow predict that this person is at risk of you know becoming a terrorist one day, and when they do that, this is when they we when we begin to see these um, farcical uh, you know headlines that you know a child uh, asking for a prayer room was you know um, uh, forwarded to some kind of prevent uh, program, a uh, person asking for uh, uh, separate seating uh, for men and women at an event or something. This is somehow you know spun into through the lens of uh, national security and terrorism and so forth because people are looking in absolutely the wrong place for uh, signs that somebody might be uh, you know uh, so-called radicalized or might be uh, going down a path towards violence. I guess you don't agree with the ex-Prime Minister David Cameron when he said that all institutions have a role in rooting out and challenging extremism um, and the university's minister under his instruction at that time, Joe Johnson, he applied pressure on the NUS, he applied pressure on the business secretary to um, communicate with the Higher Education Funding Council to monitor universities and to make sure that Prevent is imp implemented in universities. Um, you think that that's not warranted? The Prevent policy, almost in totality, uh, not only is it uh, useless in that it looks in the wrong places uh, when it comes to trying to prevent acts of violence, but it, uh, it's also counterproductive in that it has, um, there is good reason to believe that it has increased the uh, uh, suspicion towards the Muslim community that it um, actually uh, alienates uh, young Muslims and it makes them feel that they're unable to express themselves without you know, being, uh, getting in trouble with the law and so forth. Do you think then the real issue is that Islamic values are fundamentally incompatible with British values? Is this why, as you say, mainstream Muslim speakers continuously fall into the government's definition of extremists? Do you think that's the real problem? I mean, it's true that mainstream speakers um, are in the crosshairs, so to speak, 
um, and are continually smeared as extremists. But I don't think it's because of some kind of fundamental clash between Islamic and British values. 